0: The Bronx's Grandest Road is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. The four-and-a-half-mile Grand Concourse opened to traffic in November 1909. Good morning, I'm George Boracchi, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Just yesterday, the Bronx Museum of the Arts kicked off a year-long, three-part centennial celebration of the Grand Concourse. The exhibition series examines the past, present, and future of the boulevard. Joining me this morning in the studio to talk about that celebration and the history of the Grand Concourse are the Executive Director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts, Holly Block. Good morning, Holly. Hi. Peter Derrick is with the Bronx County Historical Society. Good morning, Peter.
1: Hi, how are
2: you?
0: And Deborah Martin, the Director of the Design Trust for Public Space. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning. Deborah, describe the Grand Concourse for anyone who's never walked or driven along the boulevard.
3: The Grand Concourse is a very wide boulevard. It's about 180 feet wide and it's divided into a bunch of lanes. On the two sides are two slow lanes where people can park and um, access buildings. And then in the center is a very wide and faster. thoroughfare with center islands that have trees. And um, it was designed during the City Beautiful movement. And the idea of the Grand Concourse was that it would kind of elevate the quality of life all along its length and serve as a kind of grand uh, front door for all of the buildings that, that came to be built there.
0: Peter, the Grand Concourse opened, as we said, in 1909. When was the idea for this
2: boulevard first conceived? It was conceived in the early 1890s and grew out of a plan that had been approved by the legislature in the 1880s for the Bronx Park system, where most of the parks in the Bronx, including Van Cortlandt and Bronx Park and Pelham Bay Park, were built. And one of the ideas behind the concourse wasn't just uh, to make the real estate values higher along the concourse. It was also meant as a connector to connect Manhattan via the McCombsdown Bridge, which is where close to where Yankee Stadium is now, which came across 161st Street. And then this Grand Boulevard would be the means that people could go with their horses and carriages or with their bicycles or they could even walk up to Marshalloo Parkway, which then connected you, where, which is where the concourse ends, which then connected you either to Van Cortlandt Park or to Bronx Park and then through Bronx Park to Pelham Bay Park.
0: The Grand Concourse was originally called the Grand Boulevard and Concourse, right? right?
2: And Reese Louis Reesey, who was this uh, Alsatian, the French-American, he saw it as a, as a means of recreation and as a way for people to enjoy themselves on Sundays, not, not as this, this, this major highway that it became in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I think one of the issues that I think will come up as part of what we're doing as part of the celebration of the concourse is where it's going to go next.
0: There clearly wasn't a lot going on in this area of the Bronx when the Grand Concourse was constructed. It was largely farmland, wasn't it?
2: Yes. The West Bronx was largely farmland. Most of the development in the Bronx up to 1900 was along the 3rd Avenue corridor because the 3rd Avenue L had come up in the 1880s. But that was well to the east of where the Grand Concourse was, along where the Grand Concourse now and through much of the West Bronx were private houses in some large estates overlooking the Harlem River, which were similar to the houses that still exist in Riverdale.
0: The Grand Concourse originally started at 161st Street, but then was extended south to 138th?
2: For some people, including myself, the Grand Concourse begins at 161st Street. That What you had south of 161st Street was a, an area called, an avenue called Mott Avenue. And, and at some point, the city decided, since Mott Avenue just fed into the concourse, that they would make that they would call that the concourse, but the the concourse in its original idea, that Louis Louis Recy and, and and Louis Hafen, who who was the uh, first borough president, had was to begin at one hundred sixty first Street and end at the Marshall Parkway.
0: Holly, you work right in the area of the Grand Concourse at the Bronx Museum. What's the area like for you?
4: Oh, it's great, and um, Joyce Kilmer Park in particular. I travel from Chinatown every day to come up to the museum, and I cross through the park, and I'm very happy. With my transfer to see the park, Joyce Kilmer Park looks great. And the other aspect is that through the Borough President's Office, they've uh, expanded and done a great job of renovation. And with the Median Strip, it is one of the most difficult trafficked areas, besides, I think, Ocean Parkway in New York City, where there are many accidents. And we really are trying to, you know, the whole point of the renovation was to not only beautify it and plant it, but to bring the uh you know some of it back to its original design to um really convince neighbors not to cross against the light. And one of the most important things out of the Bronx Museum uh with this exhibition not only doing an outdoor street fair but also to really encourage New Yorkers to have Stroll Sunday again on one of the lanes in the concourse to shut down the concourse one lane and to really like in the 70s, which is even up until the 80s, I think, they had Stroll Sunday.
0: That's what the Grand Concourse was all about in its early days, right? Just strolling right. along, enjoying right. it.
2: It was meant for recreational purposes. And, and, and Reese was very explicit about that. He defined the boulevard as something that people could come to and enjoy, not as something to get from point A to point B. Obviously, Deborah, that is something very important to the design trust for public space, having an
0: area where you can just go out and enjoy yourself.
3: Yeah, of course. But I think, um, in a way now is a time to think about, well, how would people use it? Because the idea of a kind of Sunday stroll, it's certainly something that people still enjoy, but I think the residents of the Bronx today come from all over the world and and they're actually very different communities than existed there at the time that the concourse was built, and they have different ideas about what's enjoyable to do on a Sunday afternoon. So we're hoping that some of that will come out um, in the future phase of the exhibition.
0: A design competition is now underway, right?
3: That's right. A design competition launched on February 2nd. Its deadline is May 1st. It's open to everyone, and um, you can get to it by going to grandconcourse100.org. And um, everyone is invited to contribute ideas about the future of the concourse and the future of the Bronx at, at multiple scales, everything from uh, um, what, would, what should be the new bench along the concourse up through what's your idea of the borough as a whole, like what the identity of the borough is, how would the, that be expressed at the concourse, like how can the Bronx sort of own its own cool
4: and it'll also be connected through our own website as well at the Bronx Museum. So you can go on the museums, bronxmuseum.org website, and um, it's fantastic to be working with the both organizations. Um, and so it's great. And also we have, through our new building at the Bronx Museum, new architecture on the concourse, uh, first since, you know, really the 60s. Um, and so I think it's really an important part to create this uh, culture corridor, and to revisit that big, wide-open space. Um, and the sidewalks are very wide, and how
0: people move back and forth. The Grand Concourse is dotted with these lovely Art Deco and Art Modern-style apartment buildings. Did the introduction of the subway spark that development?
2: Well, yeah, most of the development of the concourse took place after World War I, when the Jerome Avenue line, the number 4 line now, opened in 1917, and then uh, the, it sort of was... Sparked even more in 1933, from 1933 on, when the Concourse subway opened with a D and the uh, B now run. The fact that you had direct rapid transit access to both the east side and the west side of Manhattan. Uh, made the place a very desirable area for apartment house development. And so you had a lot of private individuals building spectacular apartment houses along the concourse. And starting from the 30s on, they were these Art Deco buildings. And that construction continued through the 1950s. Even during the Depression, there, there there was construction along the concourse, whereas in many other parts of the city, you didn't have new housing construction. So the concourse was seen from at least the early 1920s through the 1950s of the Grand Boulevard, where if you could afford it, you wanted to live on it. And if you couldn't afford it, you wanted to live at least a block or two away. You didn't want to be far from the concourse. It was
0: called the Park Avenue of the middle class, right? Right. Well, it was even... Upper middle class.
2: It was more... Upper upper, I was going to say, upper, <laughs> upper middle class was more what it was. Right, right. I mean, I had to live a block away from the concourse because my parents didn't have the money to have an apartment on the concourse. So. But I
4: also think what's interesting, too, is that some of the side streets were the first integrated neighborhoods in New York City. Right. And I think that that's also dated back to freed slaves mm-hmm. and families who stayed uh, in the Bronx and the parklands. And, you know, it's very interesting to see that a lot of what we're talking about will be covered in the past exhibition at the museum. And uh, we've borrowed artwork, both uh, architectural drawings along with photographs and artwork of paintings and sculpture, that uh, all talk about the history of the concourse.
0: We said that they were upper middle class, but who were they specifically, the folks who first moved into this area along the Grand Concourse? It
2: was mostly second generation children of European immigrants, uh, a good portion of whom were Jewish. I think the estimate is for the whole concourse from the beginning to the end that something like 60% of the population around 1940 was Jewish. But there was also a large number of Irish and German and Italian-American people living along the concourse. So it was, it was a mix of, of different people. And as Holly said, uh, at some point, you also get African-Americans and Hispanics starting to move to the side streets and down to the concourse itself.
4: Also, that uh, was a wave. You either went to the concourse or you went to Westchester or Long Island from the Lower East Side.
2: Right. It was, it was a step up, the first generation being ending up in the Lower East Side, and then to escape the congestion of the Lower East Side. That's one of the reasons the new subway lines were built, so people could move to these subway suburbs like the Bronx. I mean, we don't tend to think of the Bronx as a suburb, but in Europe, areas like the Bronx are defined as suburbs. They're not automobile suburbs. I call them in my book which I wrote about the subway system, uh, the subway suburbs. And the concourse was like the creme de la creme of the subway suburbs.
0: Well, these buildings along the concourse also had great ventilation, right? You wanted to get out of those tenements in lower Manhattan and get to an area where you can breathe a little bit.
2: Right.
1: And
4: the confusion also of the the conversion of music. People had their windows open, no air conditioning. They pretty much socialized on the street. And that's how Latin jazz was infused with even to this day of the history of hip-hop, so people hearing other people's music from the windows. Mm -hmm. And actually now you can even buy conti cloth around the corner from the museum because we have this new uh, West African population that's moved to the Bronx, and it's very popular to see uh, all kinds of great fabric and, and clothing.
2: Right. I mean, the amazing thing is, I mean, the concourse outside of Manhattan is probably the densest neighborhood in the United States in terms of uh, how many people live there because it's built up largely with five- and six-story apartment houses of relatively high quality all of which were built to have cross ventilation so we could keep the windows open and you'd be pleasant even in the summertime, which is unlike how most modern buildings are built that assume you have air conditioning. So they were really great buildings, uh, and it was a really dense urban neighborhood uh, with all of the shops and, and businesses located on the major cross streets, like 161st Street and 170th Street and Tremont Avenue. The concourse was meant as a residential street, and the businesses were sort of relegated to the side streets.
0: American novelist Avery Corman grew up along the Grand Concourse. He's perhaps best known for his novel Kramer versus Kramer. I had the chance to talk with him about the concourse and growing up there in the 1940s and 50s. And I want to take a few minutes to listen to that interview.
1: I grew up essentially on a small street called a field place, which was directly between 183rd Street and 184th Street and it was on the Grand Concourse.
0: This was in the 1930s and 40s? It was
1: really the 40s and 50s.
0: And what was the neighborhood like then?
1: It was primarily Irish, Catholic, and Jewish in that particular area. Many of the Catholic boys and girls went to parochial schools, and the uh, Jewish kids went largely to public schools, although it wasn't exclusively that.
0: Tell me some of the things that you did around the concourse during that time.
1: It was always fully rented. So there were always stores along the way. The largest physical difference between the concourse in the time that I grew up and the concourse as it is today is that the Department of Highways of the New York City or New York State didn't get their teeth into the concourse. And it had always troubled me because when I would go back and visit, which I had from time to time, I would see these large green signs that you would likely see on the Long Island Expressway indicating turns off the concourse. The concourse today is studded with those signs, and some of them are are absolutely ludicrous because they point to just small streets, but there were no signs. It was just a leafy green boulevard, and that's a change. And most of the stores that are in the lower sections of the apartment houses Kind of ended at one point as you begin to get close to the Fordham Road area. Now I notice now that there's been some reconversions, and on basements, uh, there are a lot of storefronts and uh, different kinds of services and groceries kind of carved into buildings as you get further south on the concourse, as you get below 170th Street, 167th Street it was never like that the the street was far more pristine
0: what establishments did you like to frequent during your childhood
1: the big place of course was the lowes paradise that was the mecca when i got older i would that's where you would go on dates and it was always a treat to go there a block away from where i actually lived uh, was the ascot theater which was one of the first art movie houses in the city of new york there were only a couple there were there were there were a couple downtown in in manhattan Uh, I still use the expression downtown after all these years, because that's what Manhattan was, downtown. There were a few around 42nd Street and a few here and there. There was one that I knew of in Brooklyn, and the Ascot was preeminent in the Bronx. and, And that's where, as I got older, if you wanted to show you were sophisticated and intellectual, you'd take a date. The Ascot because the Ascot showed foreign films.
0: You also mentioned, of course, the Lowe's Paradise. I understand across the street from the Lowe's Paradise was a place called Crumbs.
1: Crumbs was an interesting phenomenon of the times because uh, it was really an, an elaborate soda parlor, and there was nothing déclasse about somebody going to the Paradise and then taking a date to Crumbs. And people would actually stand behind people sitting while the people sitting were eating their hot fudge Sundays and banana splits. And waited for them to get up and then sat down. And it was a perfectly acceptable evening to go to the Lowe's Paradise and then go to Crumb's for an ice cream sundae. By today's standards, someone would be lucky if he were a male to get away with a date like that. And you would find very few people who think that that would be a complete evening. But that was a standard evening, also just. Off the concourse was the RKO Fordham.
0: During World War II, the concourse was the scene of big parades on Memorial Day. Do you remember those?
1: I absolutely do remember them, and there's a rather remarkable story associated with one. I wrote a novel called The Old Neighborhood, which takes place in the Bronx when I was a a grown-up. And uh, I went out to to Hollywood where uh, uh, somebody threw me a party, And they went into the archives of the Daily News just to decorate this room with what they considered to be artifacts from my childhood. And they had a picture of the Grand Concourse during the Memorial Day Parade. The twilight zone of this story is that the foreground building in this picture was the building I lived in. And if you look very closely, you can see faces looking out the window. And one of those faces had to be mine.
0: Amazing. Yeah, there's a great story that you tell about a time when you were walking down the Grand Concourse in Bermuda shorts.
1: Yes, yes. I don't know where you found that. I was just about college age then, and, uh, and two of my friends and I went on a cross-country car trip. And somewhere around Denver, I decided to buy Bermudas, which I had never owned And I wore the Bermudas some points on the trip, and this was in the very, very early days, as you can imagine, of Bermuda shorts. And I came back, and I was wearing them along the concourse, and a woman walked up to me on the sidewalk and said, You're a disgrace to the Bronx. Really
0: sets the time period, doesn't it? Yes. You wrote a New York Times article about 20 years ago that something about the Bronx and the Grand Concourse area has a powerful emotional hold on people.
1: Well, I think that's true. I think that this was a time when your neighborhood was like your small town, and there were still aspects of what you would consider small-town life. You were, after all, going to neighborhood schools uh... that helped define you and everyone around you went to the same schools and that helped create a sense of community during the war there was certainly a sense of that everyone was kind of um, tied into the same home front war effort and uh, uh, there was a sense of that you kind of shopped in the same stores if you bought from one grocery store Uh, That was the store you shopped in, and you didn't like to walk in with a bag from another store, because it would have showed disloyalty to the store owner. So there was a lot of sense of neighborhoods, in a sense defined by the subway stops being the neighborhoods being the equivalent in the city of small-town life.
0: Avery Corman. thank you so much for sharing your memories.
1: Great to be with you.
0: That was American novelist Avery Corman talking about growing up along the Grand Concourse in the 1940s and 50s. This morning on Cityscape, we're talking about the history of the Grand Concourse and about a year-long celebration that the Bronx Museum of the Arts is putting on to mark the 100th anniversary of the Grand Concourse. With us in studio this morning is the executive director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts, Holly Block. Also with us is Deborah Martin the director of the Design Trust for Public Space, which is involved with this year-long celebration, and Peter Derrick, who is with the Bronx County Historical Society. Peter, tell us more about the Lowe's Paradise. I've never stepped foot in there, but I hear it is an amazing place.
2: Well, Lowe's built these giant theaters all over the United States, but this was one of the largest. I think it actually, you could fit over 4,000 people to see a movie at one time. And they had what looked like Stars in the ceiling with lights that were supposed to be stars and at one point uh, although it was before I went there in the 50s they supposedly had clouds actually that they artificially made somehow and do have clouds in the top of the theater. So it was a major, it was the major theater in the Bronx. There were about nine other theaters in the Fordham Road area, but that that was the classy place to go. And my understanding is when it started, it was actually a burlesque house where they actually, you could go and see a show and then see a movie. And so you had like an all-afternoon entertainment or all-evening entertainment. And it was, as Avery Corman said, it was the place to go. Besides Avery Corman, what other luminaries have called the Grand Concourse home? I mean, authors or or the, the the Annie.
0: I understand that Penny Marshall once lived
2: yes, along Penny, the Grand Concourse. Penny and yes. Gary. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
4: But also Mel Brooks. Um. Yes, that's right. Mel
2: Brooks <laughs> also here. And the guy that did, uh, he wrote World's Fair, Doctor Off yeah. grew mm-hmm. up just off the concourse. And actually his book, World's Fair, is set in the 1930s and early 1940s, growing up along the concourse.
0: How is it that the buildings along the concourse were able to survive the dark days of the Bronx in the 1970s and 80s when arson and vandalism were rampant?
4: It's a very complicated story. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, the, the concourse survived in part because... There was a specific intent on the part of the borough president and the mayor that the concourse not deteriorate. So only one major building that I know of, the the whole Roosevelt Gardens complex, actually was taken over by a landlord that let the whole place fall apart. But most of the buildings on the concourse survived, although in the side blocks there was a lot of deterioration and abandonment. And then under Freddie Ferrer and as part of Mayor Koch's housing program, there was money that came back to fix up the buildings on the concourse. So Roosevelt Gardens, which is actually named after Theodore Roosevelt, not Franklin Roosevelt, were totally restored to their glory. uh, And many of the older buildings on the concourse that had on the side blocks to the concourse were, were rehabilitated. So you're talking about something like 40,000 apartments were rehabilitated from the 40s on, and that's one of the reasons the concourse has come back, that you can't find any burnouts anymore. And it's, it's gotten to the point there that there's so much demand for housing that it, in addition to the old apartment houses being rehabilitated and and restored. There's new apartment house construction all over the concourse area from 161st Street all the way up to uh, the Fordham Road area.
4: I think the biggest also issue was that you had 100,000 people who left the concourse in a very short period of time, and that really changed the neighborhood. Um, And I think that that was a significant change. And that's what led to the demise of of the concourse. You know, apartments were building. Also, the city was you know very involved with landlords and bringing uh, you know recent immigrants to the Bronx uh, and all of all of that as well.
0: Co-op City has also been blamed for the demise of the Grand Concourse. New right? housing, new housing. People yeah. left and moved there.
4: Right, and I, I I don't know if this is true, but what I have read before is that. Um, this type of Art Deco architecture was really only supposedly to be built for 50 years, and then there was supposed mm-hmm. to be, in the 60s and 70s, new housing and new mm-hmm. verticality, and that's what Co-op City started.
2: Co-op City didn't help the concourse, but, I mean, <laughs> the concourse, what happened to the concourse would have happened to the concourse with or without Co-op City. I think the, what you can say about Co-op City, which is that you can say the same thing about the Cross Bronx Expressway. It certainly was a catalyst, and it accelerated the deterioration, but it wasn't responsible for the deterioration. Similar things happened in other areas of Brooklyn, and there wasn't any Co-op City. I was going to ask you that question. What
0: impact did the Cross Bronx Expressway have on the Grand Concourse?
2: I don't think it had very much of an impact at all on the Grand Concourse. The major impact, if you want to make a case, is more about a mile and a half, East of there in East Tremont, where that's where the Caro book about Robert Moses actually focuses. Caro doesn't actually say anything about the concourse because I think he, would have, he wouldn't have been able to make the case when he wrote the book in the early 70s that the, that the Cross Bronx Expressway, impact of the concourse. And in fact, I just happened to be driving, giving a tour for somebody of the Bronx yesterday afternoon. I was driving up the concourse, and I said, look, we're about to go over the Cross Bronx Expressway. And he said, where is it? And you can't Hmm. see it. I mean, it's way down below. It goes goes way under the concourse. So, Mm. you know, the Cross Bronx Expressway had a negative impact on the Bronx. But again, it wasn't the catalyst. It was a whole bunch of other things, as Holly said, that were going on. It's a very complex story that has to do with the job situation in New York and the fact that the economy fell apart in the late 60s and early 70s where like 800,000 jobs were lost in New York City. Um, and the landlords had trouble getting, getting mortgage money from the banks if they wanted to fix up their buildings. I and mean, a lot of the buildings that were built in the concourse were 40, 50 years old by the 1970s. They needed to have new roofs. They needed to have new boilers. They needed to have new windows. And the landlords couldn't get the money to do that. I think the amazing thing for people who've been giving tours of the Bronx for the last 30 years, is how much the concourse has turned around, as well as the rest of the Bronx. Holly?
4: And I was just going to say that's why the, the new competition is is really great, because right. you know, it will lead to new ideas, new concepts, new ways of
0: neighbors working with each other. Um, Deborah, are you expecting anything out of this competition? Do you have any ideas what people may submit?
3: Our hopes are that the submissions that we get will be everything from Kind of dreamy ideas about how the whole borough could think of itself in terms of its identity and uh, down to, you know, what would be the most beautiful paving material that should um, unify the whole four and a half miles of the concourse and, you know, at every scale. So I I expect we will get that.
0: In light of your competition and the centennial of the Grand Concourse, we went out and we talked to people trying to get a sense of how they viewed the concourse, people who live and work along the concourse today. And here's what they had to say.
3: My name is Wanda Balines. I live in 1024 Walton Avenue. Most of the buildings in the Grand Concourse are art deco, and it was one of the main arterias in the city at the beginning of the 20th century. How do I describe it? Full of energy.
5: My name is Tomasco Bertiel. I live in 940 Grand Concourse mm, about 30 years back. It was a little bit different. There was more old people around, American people, Italian, Jewish. Now there's more more Latinos and more blacks and Dominicans. It's been nice to me. I never had problems. And I've been here, you know, quite a while, so there ain't nothing, nothing bad about it. It is beautiful. I won't say, it's, you know, that it's bad. It's not a bad neighborhood because... I believe, you know, the the crimes is all low, but I don't hear any crimes around here. I am Jacqueline Vargas. I'm from the Bronx.
4: It's quiet sometimes, and sometimes it's loud, but it's okay.
5: Frank McQuaid, Bronx, New York. When I was a little kid living at 157th and St. Ann's Avenue, my parents used to bring me and my sisters up to the concourse to see where the rich people lived. If you notice all the beautiful Art Deco buildings... And some have deteriorated over the years, but they're being restored. And, of course, the two best things I remember about the concourse was the Lowe's Paradise, the greatest movie theater in the world. And across the street was Crumb's Ice Cream Parlor. It was L-shaped. You could enter from the concourse and go out on, what is it, 189th Street. And at the back, they had this candy counter with all the, like, loose candies in it. And if you sat down in the big plush booths, there was the hugest ice cream sundays and banana splits and whatever. Further up you had the RKO Fordham mm-hmm. and the competing orange juice hot dogs places across diagonally across the corners. I think one was Needix, I forget the name of the other. But oh when I was a kid and a teenager, the whole area of the Bronx was so alive and thriving, a wonderful place. I'm sure that young people today think that their Bronx is the best Bronx. But in my nostalgic eyes, the Bronx will never be like it was in the 1950s or 60s.
0: Holly, let's talk more about this year-long celebration. You have a lot planned. A lot planned. Tours, walking
4: tours uh, with a number of great people uh, leading them. And then we're also working with the Center for Urban Pedagogy doing quite a bit of art workshops with students and youth, and I think that that's a really important aspect. We've been developing these ideas since more earlier than 2005 and um, really working with our student population and getting them to understand and know more about the
0: neighborhood. The past, present, and future of the Grand Concourse on display for the next year, thanks to the Bronx Museum of the Arts. The exhibition is called Intersections. Again, it's a year-long three-part centennial celebration. I want to thank Holly Block, the executive director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts, for coming in. Holly, thank you. Thank you. Also want to thank Peter Derrick with the Bronx County Historical Society. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. And Deborah Martin, the director of the Design Trust for Public Space. Thanks, it was Deborah. It my pleasure. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Once again, for more information about the Bronx Museum of the Arts' year-long celebration of the Grand Concourse, visit bronxmuseum.org. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Michal Nerea. Have a great weekend.